are listening to the Central Students Podcast. To learn more about Central Students, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net slash students. So, just to kind of make sure we're on the same page, what book of the Bible are we going through currently? All right, I heard a hanging hanging. So, uh, so we're going through 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we are going to start reading from there. But before we get there, and while you're turning the page uh, to that, I, want, I have a question for you. Um, what, if you were to name, what is the best part about being a Christian? Like the best part of Christianity like, what would it be? And I can't see hands, so just say it, because I can't see. Jesus, knowing where you're going. What else? Knowing who you're living for. Knowing why you're living. Hope. What else? What was that? Love and faith. Being forgiven. Trust? Trust. Grace. Serving. Mercy. See, these are all amazing, amazing things, right? These are amazing things that come with a relationship with Christ. You know, and I, and I want you to know, I don't want that all of these things are incredible things for us to thank God for. These are amazing things for us to, to enjoy and to, and, to, and to thank God for and to praise him for and to be encouraged by. Even last week, we talked about the, the, the several things that it is that encouraged Paul during his ministry. But I don't want you to be fooled or I don't want you to forget this one thing that for 2,000 years, For Christians, the thing that has been the motivating factor for their lives is what happens after we die. That is what we are here for. There's a quote, I can't remember who said it, but the, the church is in the business of helping people get ready to die. And I want you to know that what we're gonna talk about tonight is probably, not probably, it is the most encouraging thing that you could possibly fathom. Because I think if we're honest, everyone in this room, and even not even in this room, but every, people outside of this room, we all have one common fear, and it's death. I've heard a saying that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Or everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. But we need to know that as Christians, the number one thing that brings us joy is what happens in eternity. That this life is not all that there is. That there is a hope for us that death cannot take away. And if you know me and you've heard me speak for five minutes, you know that there is something that just grinds my gears. And it is false teaching. And if there's one thing that false teaching does more than you would imagine, is it puts a massive emphasis on right now. Puts a massive emphasis, even if it sounds super spiritual. It's all about now. It's all about experiencing signs and wonders, right? Now. It's all about miracles. Now. It's all about these things. Now. It's all about having your best life. Now. And just so you know, the only way you could possibly have your best life now is if you go to hell after this. 
See, this is, we, are, we have a hope that is beyond this right here. When was the last time you heard a false teacher talk about the joy of dying and being with Christ for eternity? Hardly ever. And what we see Paul talk about constantly and all throughout scriptures is this idea of what happens when we die is the thing that gives us hope. But the question is, is what, it, what happens? Because I think a lot of us, we understand, okay, like there's heaven, but we have no idea what that means. We have no idea what that looks like, how that's gonna be, and then we know that Jesus is gonna return, so like what does that do to me when I'm in heaven? And what happens is, is that churches and pastors have focused so much on helping people be able to go through Monday that we have robbed them of the joy that comes from eternity. When was the last time in a Bible study, don't answer me out loud, the last time in a Bible study or in a Sunday morning sermon where you heard a pastor or somebody teach you about the joy that comes after we die and specifically studying the Bible about what the Bible says happens when we die? Why? Because we want something that's more practical. I want to give you something that's going to help you tomorrow. And you know what? That's important, but I will not do that at exchange for what's going to give you hope for eternity. If I give you hope for tomorrow, but I don't give you hope for eternity, then I have failed you. What we're going to look at is what is it that made Paul just, get, just, just loaded Paul up with encouragement and nothing that happened to him discouraged him. Ultimately, it was what ha- it's what waiting for him in eternity. So we have a ton of stuff to get to. So I'm going to just fly through, buckle your seatbelt, we're riding, okay? So we close chapter four with Paul saying, we look to the things that are, we do not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient or they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's how he transitions into this idea. He's continuing this thought of what it is that encourages him. So chapter five, verse one, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we, should, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life." Sorry, I lost my spot. Maybe swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Think about that. While we are at home in this body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to, play, to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're talking about, and we're kind of reading that, it's like, okay, what in the world is he talking about? We're going to talk about really what this what. Instead of diving into the weeds, and I will tell you that this, is, this message we're going to talk about tonight, this is not, like, if you're going to talk about how do you properly, like, dissect a passage, tonight is not going to be that. I'm just going to tell you, okay? But we're going to use this passage as a springboard into the overall theme of what Scripture talks about with this topic. And the first thing we need to understand before we talk about what happens when we die, and the thing we need to understand, too, is that this, I'm, what, everything I'm going to talk about tonight is specifically for the Christian, 
okay? What happens when the Christian dies, okay? It's very important that we make that distinction. But before we can dive into this, we have to understand something, is how is it that man is created, right? Man and woman, as, as people, how are we designed? And there is so, it's something in theology called a dichotomy, okay? Fancy word, you probably won't remember it, that's okay. I barely do, all right? But it's this idea that you and I are composed of two parts. We're composed of a spirit and our body, right? Our flesh and bone body that you see in front of you and our spirit, okay? And just so you know, I'm not making this up. If you go to Ecclesiastes 12.7, and I'm gonna look on the screen here. Ecclesiastes 12.7, and the dust returns to the earth as it was. What did God made Adam out of? Dust, right? He formed him out of the dust and he breathed life into his nostrils, right? And the dust of the earth returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Next verse, Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Philippians 1, 21 through 24. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in this flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. See, all throughout scripture, this is something that is emphasized, the fact that our spirit resides within our body. Does that make sense? I hope so, because I can't see anybody's faces. So does that make sense? Yes? Cool. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. It says, the bodies of men after death will return to dust, and they will see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous are received into the highest heavens, and the souls of the wicked are cast into hell. Besides these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. It's very important that we understand that. Okay, so now that we kind of understand this, we understand how we're constructed, how we are made, then we have to also understand something that's very important, and you're kind of be like, what does this have to do with dying? It has everything to do with dying, okay? So what we have to understand is what happens when we are saved? What happens at salvation? Okay, this is gonna continue on with this idea that when we are saved, what happens? Because I think that's something that's very confusing to a lot of people, that, like, when I'm saved, what is it that exactly happens? Like, what, you know, and, and there's just a lot of confusion. We have to understand that when we were, not before you were saved, you, are, you were spiritually dead. Your spirit and your flesh were corrupted by sin. You know, the reason that we are physically dying, our bodies decay, is because of sin. And our, and our spirit was dead because of sin. It is, it is corrupted to the core. Scripture says that the heart is deceitful above all things. And we are, when we are saved, it is we have crucified our sinful spirit and we have been raised to a new spiritual life. I'm gonna give you, an, I'm gonna give you a handful of scriptures to, to that, that show this. Ephesians chapter two. If you ever wanna memorize a chunk of verses, Ephesians chapter two. And you were dead in the trespasses in your sins. What, what, and you were what? Dead. Were, were you handicapped? 
Were you on life support? Were you limping? No, you were dead, dead in the, spirit, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Praise the Lord. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. You see that? We were once spiritually dead, then he made us alive. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I think a lot of you could probably say this from memory. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Spiritually dead, made alive. Next verse, John chapter three, verses two and three. A man named Nicodemus came to Jesus at nighttime. He said, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice, he is born again. And it goes on to this conversation of, and and Nicodemus says, how can a man enter his mother's womb and be born a second time? That doesn't really make sense. And what Jesus goes on to say is he goes on and he says that, I tell you the truth, that you must be born of water and of spirit. And a lot of people will say that that is a reason, that's Jesus saying you have to be baptized to be saved. No, that's not what that's saying. That to be born of water is like talking literally of like physical birth. Okay, like physical birth, not to get gross, but it's, it's, a, it's a miracle of how God works things, right? But it's when a woman's water breaks, she gives birth. So being born of water, physical birth, and born of the spirit. So it's not enough to just have been born with breath in your lungs. You need to be made spiritually alive because all of us are born spiritually dead. Ephesians 4, 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Putting off our old sinful self. 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're gonna talk about this next week. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, when you are saved, your spirit is now something new that it was not before. Do you see that? that you were corrupted in sin, you were dead in your trespasses, and when Jesus came and saved you, he did not just make you a better version of you. That, that is critical to understand. He did not just put lipstick on a pig. He changed you. You were spiritually dead, and now you are made spiritually alive. Galatians 2.20, another thing that's a great verse to remember. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, obviously, Paul is not literally crucified when he wrote this. He's talking about spiritually, spiritually crucified. He has put to death his 
corrupted sinful spirit. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Keep on going. I got more. Romans 7, chapter 7, verse 22. For I delight in the law of God, where? In my inner being. Notice how before you are saved, you do, you despise God. Scripture says in Romans 3 that none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. So to delight in the law of God in your inner being means that something within you had to change significantly. Colossians 3.10. And we have put on the new self. See, we have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See, one thing that we have to understand is that before you are saved, your spirit and your flesh are corrupted in sin. That is very important to understand. That when we are saved, we are forgiven 100%. But what, is the, what, what happens there is that we are made spiritually alive. That we are no longer spiritually dead. Like, that should make you happy. That when God sees you, he does not see you spiritually corrupted and dead in sin and dead in your trespasses. He sees you as spiritually made alive. And there is no greater display of God's power than when he takes something that is a corrupted dead mass and he turns it into beautiful, holy righteousness. Think about it. God made the universe out of nothing, but he made a... He made your soul righteous out of what was totally unrighteous. That is the greatest miracle ever. Miracles happen every day. And the greatest miracle is when somebody gets saved. Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. This is a longer passage, but it's very important. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase or grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is very important when we talk about baptism, right? See, baptism is, is extremely symbolic. Going under the water symbolizes spiritually dying to our sins, being raised out of the water, spiritually being raised to new life in Christ. We are baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Think about that. You have spiritually been set free from sin. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions." 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Do you see what happens when you are saved? That your spirit which was corrupted and dead has now been made alive. You have been made alive. At salvation the spirit is changed which leads to new desires. It leads you to now love the God that you once hated and to start to hate the sin that you once loved. And that's why I say this all the time. If you claim to be made spiritually alive, but your entire life reflects someone who is spiritually dead, then are you really? I've given this example a million times. I'm gonna do it again. Because some of you probably, maybe one person hasn't heard it. If I was on my way here, we start at 6.30. I I walked in at like 7.45. And y'all are like, yo, Mike, what happened to you? Where are you at? Where have you been? And I was like, you know, it's the craziest thing. Because I live in in my neighborhood, uh, I have a nail in my tire because there's construction going on all the time. And I had a flat tire. And I pulled off on the side of the road to change my tire. And my tire rolled into the middle of the street. So to go get my tire, I run to go get my tire. And when I look up, an 18-wheeler was two inches from my face. And I got run over. But, but you know, it was just a crazy scene. It was messy and nasty. But that's why I'm here. Uh, that's why I'm here late, so, but I'm here, don't worry about it. You would look at me and say, you are a liar. Because it's impossible to have an encounter with an 18-wheel truck going on the highway, fed on, and not be changed. Not look any different. And I will say the same thing to you. That it is impossible to have been spiritually dead and then be made spiritually alive, resurrected supernaturally in your spirit and look no different. What we have just read is just a snippet of what scripture talks about of the inward change that happens for the Christian. It is the greatest miracle you could ever witness. However, here's the question. If I have been made spiritually alive, why do I still struggle with sin? That's a great question. Because here's the thing, I'm a pastor and I still struggle with sin. Somebody cuts me off while I'm driving and I'm just like, you know, and I don't say it, but I want to really bad, but that's just reflective of what I sin. And sometimes I do say things I shouldn't say. And you know what, hey, we all struggle with sin. If not, you're perfect. You should just be taken up to heaven now, right? We all struggle with sin. So here's the question though. If I've been made spiritually alive, if my spirit is no longer corrupted by sin, no longer dead in my trespasses, then why do I still struggle? Remember, what did we open with? What did I open with? How is man made? You are made of spirit and what else? Your flesh. See, what you see is that you are not just corrupted in sin spiritually, your flesh is also corrupted in sin. And what happens is that when you are spiritually made alive, you're spiritually made alive and it's awesome, but you live in a sinful flesh. And now where there was once no conflict, there is now constant conflict. 
Because you know what the Spirit of God wants. You know what your resurrected spirit wants. You know what the Holy Spirit of God given to you desires, but your flesh wants the opposite. And that's why you desire to pray, but you struggle to do so. That's why you desire to read your word, but you just struggle to do so. If I had a dollar for every time somebody told me that they didn't have time to read their Bible this week, which is not true, please do not ever tell me, hey, how's your Bible reading going? And just say, I didn't have time. Please don't. If you do, I'll love you and I'll just be like, oh, that's okay. But inwardly, I'll be like, stop lying to me, okay? We all have time, but the thing is, is that spiritually you may want to, but your flesh wants the total opposite. And there is now conflict. Galatians 5.17 puts it perfectly, wherever it is. You can just leave the scripture up there because there's like 40 slides. So make it easier on yourself. Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Romans 7, 14 through 25. This is the Apostle Paul, okay? Like head honcho, big guy. Apostle Paul, this is what he says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law, with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Do you now see this conflict? That every single one of us, if you are a born again Christian, we all live with. We all live with this. We all live with this constant friction of our spirit desiring this, but the sinful flesh desiring something else. Better understand the sinful flesh, Romans chapter eight. Really, you can read the whole chapter, but we're just gonna do 13 verses here. There is is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me read that again, because that is amazing. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice, Jesus did not live this life in sinful flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the, to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind of, on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice that. What, let's go to that back one more time. I'm sorry. Verse eight. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse nine. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That is critically important. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If the Holy Spirit of God does not live within you, you are not a Christian. And I don't mean that to sound harsh. I mean that because it's so vital. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people that think that they are Christians when they are not. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. See, our flesh is corrupted. We desire things that are opposed to God, but our spirit has been raised to new life. So that poses a problem. Because the next verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Somebody read this. Somebody, Brock, read it. Okay, that is a big deal. Because you cannot inherit the kingdom of God as long as you live within your sinful flesh. Even though you've been made spiritually alive. You cannot in your sinful flesh inherit eternity, which is a big problem, isn't it? It's a serious problem that our spirit longs for what our flesh could never have. That's a problem. And that's where we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if this tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God. If your flesh cannot inherit eternity, then what must happen? What must happen? You have to die. Your flesh cannot go where your spirit longs for. So when you die, and this flesh drops, your spirit is now free with Christ. Can you imagine how beautiful that is? That your spirit has been released from the thing that holds it back. And you know what? 
When you see your father face to face, what is it that he will see? Is that he will see a spirit that he has made perfectly alive, not of our own works, but by his grace. And when he sees you, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Thank God that he does not see me as I may see myself. That he sees me as redeemed, forgiven, righteous, holy, made alive. And when I shed this sinful flesh, I will experience him in his fullness. And when he says that this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, he's talking about our body. That when this tent, I don't know if any of you have ever slept in a tent, but they're flimsy. They fall apart. Brandon knows all about tents from this Sunday morning. How easily they can be destroyed. They fall apart. But notice, if you have your Bibles, what does he say? He goes that if our earthly home, this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, what do we have waiting for us? We have a building from God. See, there is going to be a day where when you are with Christ, when he returns in his glory at the second coming of Christ, what will happen is that you will be given a new physical body. Okay? And he goes on, he explains this a little bit here in these first 10 verses of chapter five. But what happens is when we die, our spirit goes to be with, the God, be with God. To be absent of the body is present with the Father, and that is amazing. That we will be spiritually with God. God, but here's something that's even more amazing is that there is going to be a day when Christ returns to this earth to establish his kingdom on this earth where you will be given a new body that is not corrupted by sin and you will physically, like not in a dream state, okay, I'm talking physically, be with your God. Imagine how beautiful that is. If that doesn't make you happy, if that doesn't make you joyful for what is to come, then nothing will. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He's talking about those who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So what happens to people who have already died when Christ returns, what happens? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What do we encourage one another with? We encourage one another with the hope that we have in the future. I heard a sermon the other day that just made me want to just punch a munchkin. Like, oh my gosh. There's a story when Jesus is on the boat with his disciples and the storm is, is coming and, he, and, he, and, he, and, and there's a storm and, and the disciples are freaking out and, and they find Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. And they wake Jesus up and they're like, don't you care, we're about to die. And Jesus wakes up and he looks at the storm and what does he say? He says, peace, be still. And he calms 
the water. And the disciples look at him and they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And do you know what the sermon was about? And the title of the sermon was how to sleep in your storm. That is not the point of that passage. That's not the point. The point is, who is this that that the wind and the waves obey him? Not, here's how you can sleep in your storm. See, what happens is we give people what they want and we rob them of the thing that really will give them joy. We rob them of the most beautiful joy that they could possibly have. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 24. And I'm almost done. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Think of that. Think of that. Go, can you go back to that last verse? All of these pastors that they always preach about how God is trying to help encourage you right now, if right now is all we have, we are the most to be pitied in all the world. We're the most to be pitied. Next verse. But... In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death, by a man comes also the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ is the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Jesus is the first one to receive his glorified body. Then when he returns to the earth in his second coming, the Christian will receive their new physical body. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after the destroying of every rule and every authority and every power. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Sorry, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Think about this. And what he's talking about is for those who are still alive when Christ returns, you know what? For those of us who die before Christ returns, we will be, boom, immediately spiritually with the Father. And that's amazing. But then when we return, when Christ returns, we will be given a new physical body. But for those who are still on the earth, it is boom, boom. Sinful flesh, glorified flesh, amazing. In the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we shall be changed. Next verse, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the, imp- when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And we, there's more to it, but I'm running out of time. Philippians 3, 17 through 21. Now that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received. That is, I don't know if that's the right verse. Uh, that is not the right verse. I am so sorry. I think I might have typed the wrong, th- wrong thing in there. My fault, everybody. 
But basically, it is saying that our citizenship is not on this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. And the thing that you need to know is that when you die, you have hope. You know, scripture doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about what heaven is like, but it does tell us one thing. It's better. It's better. Death is not something to fear. Death is something that we should look to with excitement, knowing that what it brings. Right? What it brings. What does that physical body look like? I don't really know. But if you go to John chapter 21, This is Jesus after he's been raised from the dead. And he meets the disciples on the shore. He's with them. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. What what was the disciples' reaction? What did they say? It says, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew that it was the Lord. That people did not even recognize him. When Jesus appeared to Mary at the tomb, when she turned around, she thought he was the gardener. She didn't even know who he was. How did Jesus show who he was to his disciples? How did he prove who he was to them? He showed them the scars. He showed them the scars. But here's the thing, that when, even when you go to this story, they didn't even ask because they knew who he was. And here's something that I need to tell you guys. That I don't have all the answers for what happens exactly when we die, but you know what I do know? Is that the moment that my eyes close for the last time on this earth, I know that I will open them in the presence of God. In an instant, there's nothing to fear. Look, I understand that there's a lot of scariness that comes with that. Sunday morning, you guys know that me and Pastor Allen, we work with the Seminole High School football team. Sunday morning, one of the players died in a car accident. And to my knowledge, he did not know Christ. That breaks my heart. But you know what? This hope that we've been talking about tonight, you can have that. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear what comes after this because you can have an assurance of what Christ has paid for you. What Christ has paid for you. And we're going to actually do something different than we usually do. We're actually going to sing a song. And Noah, you can go ahead and come up here. We're going to sing a song and then I'm going to give you some time actually to kind of break into groups. We're kind of running a little late. And again, I said this last week, if your parents are here, don't make your parents wait for you, okay? But I think that, that see, when I, when I was putting this stuff together or whatever, like, like, when I worshiped Sunday morning, I worshiped with a totally different perspective. That you know what, God, I thank you for all that you're doing right now, but you know what, God, I thank you even more for what you've prepared for me in the future. Right? So we're gonna sing a song. And it is a well-known song, so let not your hearts be troubled. But I'm gonna go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for what you have purchased for us. We thank you that we do not have anything to fear because you have purchased for us what we could never purchase for ourselves. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask that everything that we say and do bring honor and glory to your name.
Thank you again for listening to the Central Students Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net slash students. 